Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Pray with me, please. Father, as we have considered already today this this truth of your word, we are grateful that you did not leave this creation alone. After the ancient rebellion that left your human creature and and because of the human creature, the whole creation alienated from you. With ears that would not hear and eyes that could not see. Groaning under the curse, marked out for death, dissolution, And yet this creation that you loved, you were not willing to leave it to itself, to its own self-destruction. But as the God who spoke all things into existence, you continued to speak into that creation, disclosing yourself to it, pouring yourself out into it, Constantly making known your purposes for it. Even in calling a man to yourself, the man Abraham, and appointing him as the one through whom your renewing, restoring blessing would flow out to the world of human beings and ultimately through them to the creation as a whole. And Father, all of that faithfulness, that commitment, that tenacity in being the God who speaks, all of that reached its climax in the word become flesh. The one who doesn't simply speak the truth, but embodies the truth. The one who is the incarnate truth. The one in whom the world comes to know truth in the ultimate sense, the one in whom people become children of truth, the one in whom the whole creation will embrace and will be forever defined by the truth of its own purpose and destiny. Father, as we are gathered in your name, as we are gathered as children of light and children of the day, I pray that you will continue to minister to us as we gather around this song of praise today. I pray for your kindness and help to me and to all who are gathered that we would indeed have ears to hear 
what the Spirit says to the church. And that we would not only hear, but that we would hear with eagerness. That we would embrace and rejoice. And that we would be transformed by your word, which is truth. O Father, we ask that by your Spirit, Christ would be exalted in us and among us today. And it's in his name that we ask. Amen. Well, we've spent a couple weeks considering the Psalms in an introductory way and uh, most generally first Hebrew poetry and just how to even think about approaching the Psalms from a literary standpoint. Last time we looked a little bit at the structure of the Psalms and the various themes that are a part of the Psalms. Uh, But as we begin today, uh, uh, even thinking this week about where exactly I wanted to start, uh, the reason for starting with Psalm 1 is not just because it's the first Psalm, uh, but because there's a reason that it's the first Psalm. As as I said, probably over a thousand years or so, these uh, songs of Israel's worship were composed And doubtless, um, perhaps even thousands, certainly many hundreds of psalms that did not find their way into our Christian canon. And yet, when uh, the the Jewish collators began to collect these songs that had been at the heart of Israel's worship for centuries, and they uh, selected and, and kind of rested upon these 150 psalms, they determined to put this particular psalm at the beginning. And they obviously had a reason for it. And while I can't be dogmatic as to what that reason is, I do think there are some things that we can say about it. What struck me, first of all, is that as the first psalm, not only in the Psalter, but in the first book of the five books of the Psalter, that first book is the most Davidic of all five. Of the Psalms that comprise Book 1, only four of them are not explicitly uh, attributed to David. This is one of those four. Now, Psalm 2, we know from the New Testament that the Jewish tradition, certainly of Jesus' day, was that Psalm 2 was also a Psalm of David, the great enthronement psalm. But it struck me that in the book of the Psalms that is the most Davidic, that this one that is anonymous comes first. Why not pick a Psalm of David? As central as David was to the Psalms as the great king of Israel, the great musician, worship leader of Israel, why begin the Psalms with one that is anonymous? And I think that there are at least a couple of things that we can say. And again, I can't be dogmatic as to what the uh, Israelite collators had in mind, why they made this decision. Uh, But our arrangement of the Psalms is very much what you find in the Jewish Old Testament, in the Tanakh. Their scriptures, their book of the Psalms also begins with this psalm. And the first thing I think that we can say about it before we read it, is that it is a general psalm. It deals with general principles. It's not individual in its orientation. It doesn't have a very kind of uh, narrow focus to it. 
It deals with general sweeping principles, and it is generic in the sense that it does not reflect one particular person or one particular uh, uh, set of, of needs or issues. Secondly, the very fact that it's anonymous causes the reader, or at least leads the reader, to see, again, a more universal quality to it. If it were a psalm of Asaph or of David, our tendency would be to try to connect its content with that particular individual. But because it is anonymous, it, it leads us, at least tends us in our, in our thinking, to view its message, its message of devotion to God and its blessedness in universal terms. In other words, what it's depicting, what it's speaking of, the suggestion is that it is God's intent for every human being. Even though it's an Israelite psalm, its message is universal. And I would argue that what it's putting forth as the first in the Psalter, the Songs of Sonship, is a message that God intends ultimately for every person to own and embrace. Its message, what it sets forth, what its hope is, is a universal message. Rather than something that uniquely pertained to you know, an individual who penned it or even to the sons of Israel. And so I think it provides a fitting summary introduction, not just to book one of the Psalms, but to the Psalter as a whole. As I've said, I've titled this series, The Songs of Sonship. The Sefer Tehillim is the songs of praise. It's a collection of songs, but ultimately the center of it is what does it look like? What privileges, what obligations, what does it look like to be the sons of God, the people of God. And if the Psalms are son songs of sonship, then the first one actually sets out in, in a kind of summary fashion and extols what it looks like to be a son of God, a child of God. And the singular blessedness that is attached to it, the blessedness of the children of God. And again, it also indicates to us that that sort of sonship is God's design for his human creature. In that sense, its message is universal. Its message is universal. Well, read with me then Psalm 1. The writer says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And for the sake of the times in which we live, man does not obviously mean males only, right? We all understand that. How blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, and in his law he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, in whatever he does, he prospers. But it is not so with the wicked. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, we spent a fair amount of time talking again about Hebrew poetry and particularly the use of imagery and parallelism. And I'm going to be drawing that out even as we move through this psalm today, because those literary devices are very important to uh, us tracking with the significance and the direction in which the psalm itself flows. So just some general observations first. The psalmist begins with this celebratory declaration. How blessed, how blessed or how blessed is the man? How blessed is the person? What person? What sort of person? He goes on then to explain that blessedness, how it pertains to that person, what, who, who that blessed person is. He explains it negatively and positively. So he begins with this kind of antithetic parallelism, showing who this person is that is blessed, both in negative terms and then in positive terms. And then after describing that person, he explains the benefits or what does this blessedness entail. And once again, he does it through this parallelism that is antithetic. But this time he does it chiastically. He reverses the order. So he describes this person negatively, then positively. Then he talks about the blessedness. What does it entail? What is the benefit of this blessedness, positively, then negatively? So there's a chiasm to it also that we have to note. And then he turns to the outcome that awaits those who fall short of this blessedness. And he does so by, again, saying what does not pertain to them, but what does then pertain to them. The parallelism works itself throughout the whole psalm. This versus that. Not this, but that. He characterizes these individuals as the wicked, describing their outcome as the privation of that which awaits the righteous. So he establishes two categories in this introductory psalm, the righteous and the wicked. But they're defined in a certain way that we don't want to miss. If you asked a person on the street, what is a righteous person, what is a wicked person, that you would certainly get an answer, right? But would it actually correspond to what the writer's getting at here? There's a way in which we're to understand the righteous and the wicked, But the wicked are described as awaiting an outcome that is the privation of that which awaits the righteous. Both these ideas defined in terms of the psalm itself and the depiction that it puts forth. And then lastly, the psalmist concludes this song by noting that these two antithetical Outcomes for two antithetical individuals or kinds of people derive from the same insight and the same just judgment of the one and the same God. Now that's a basic 
kind of summary flyover of the psalm itself and some of the structural features. So again, I hope as we go through these psalms that you won't just read through them, but you'll look at the way they're constructed. Look at the way ideas bounce off of each other. Look at the way they interpret each other. It's one of the beauties of poetry, and certainly of Hebrew poetry, is that there is a greater significance in the whole seen organically than in the individual pieces. As I said before, prophecy in the scripture is constructed in the genre of poetry. Why? Because poetry enables such a dense concentration, both in terms of content itself, but also the pathos that it it, it provokes within us. Poetry is the most effective form of communication to say a lot with a little. And it draws in our imagination. It draws in uh, even our meditation. And that's certainly, I hope, will be the case with the Psalms. They are songs of worship. And worship is about thinking, meditating, contemplating, chewing on things. So he begins then, again, with this exclamation, how blessed is the man And he describes that blessedness as arising from certain things. First negatively, then positively. Stated negatively, what is the basis of this blessedness? Here he employs climactic parallelism. Remember we talked about climactic parallelism, where the parallel pieces build to a climax or an apex. And he does that here with twin strands. There there are two strands of climactic parallelism running side by side. The first strand is this movement from walking to standing to sitting. And the second strand is from wickedness to sin to scorn. There are two, and obviously they're all together, but there are two strands of this parallelism that builds. So the first line of ascent or movement upward towards a climax draws on imagery of physical motion or settledness. Walking, standing, sitting. And here... The idea, he uses that imagery of walking, standing, and sitting, but he's not really talking about walking, standing, and sitting, right? It's imagery that signifies these ideas. Here's the progress from receptiveness to agreement to settled conviction or settled disposition, The second strand of this climactic parallelism is, has a, not, not a physical movement idea, but a moral, ethical kind of progress, if you will, from the idea of a non-specified, generic kind of corruption to active deviation from the truth to, lastly, conscious renunciation. So the first imagery 
has this movement from the idea of a receptiveness to agreement to a settled conviction. The second piece of it has the idea of of emotion or an assent from a kind of unspecified corruption to active departure from the truth to conscious renunciation, overt renunciation. So this twofold, two-strand, if you will, climactic parallelism highlights this idea of the progress of human corruption from intrinsic inclination towards error to embracing a course of active waywardness to settling into a posture of open scorn towards God. So as he talks, he says, how blessed is the man? What sort of man? And then he uses this two-stranded climactic parallelism to say what sort of a person. But again, the, the, the um, explanation of this person is in the negative form. The first piece of this is negative. It's a negation. It's what the blessed man is not, what he does not do, what does not characterize him. He begins with the negative. So the blessed man is the man who does not listen to, who does not seek out or is not receptive to voices that are governed by corruption and error. And even less, as part of this climactic parallelism, even less does he embrace and act out the path of waywardness that they, that characterizes them. And even less than that, he is not characterized by the kind of conscious, overt scorn towards God. That's how this progress works. So the blessed man doesn't do this. Yea, he doesn't do this. Yea, he even doesn't do this. And together, all those three things, I think, flesh out or kind of summarize this thing of what it is to stand in antithesis to God and his truth. That's the negative side of it. Now, again, this, the parallelism works all the way through here in different ways. The second piece of that, the, the, the antithesis of that larger negative side is a positive statement concerning him. And what does he say? No, his delight is in Yahweh's law. And in his law, he meditates day and night. The person who is blessed is characterized by unwavering devotion to Yahweh's law. And what we have to be careful here to recognize, and you know, I think in the things Colin said, he was hinting at this, the idea of law is not how we tend to think of it. It's not devotion to a catalog of regulations or prescriptions or, uh, you know, laws of the land in the way that we think about it. Not the idea of uh, a body of impersonal laws and regulations, but God's revealed truth. It's Torah. God's revealed truth, which obviously does have the 
bring the obligation of embrace and conformity. It's not as if God's truth does not require anything of us. But the issue is God's disclosure, God's instruction, God's revealed truth. And in the Israelite context of the Psalms, that Torah specifically refers to Israel's covenant charter with God. The psalmist is saying that the man who is blessed is the one who is who shows fidelity, integrity, commitment, devotion to the covenant relationship revealed in this thing called the law of Moses. The covenant charter that defined and prescribed, that informed and that governed the relationship of Israel with God, sons to a father. Israel is my son, right? So it's, it's the idea of the blessed man is the one who is devoted to the truth, and in an Israelite context, devoted to the truth of his own sonship as defined and prescribed by God himself, revealed in his Torah. The one who is fully revealed or fully devoted to that. And so he's not saying the one is blessed who acknowledges and agrees with commandments that he finds in the scripture. That's not what he's saying. Or not simply someone who kind of mulls over the scripture or thinks about some things or even marvels at certain things that he finds in the scripture. He says, no, this is one who meditates day and night. Meditates on God's revealed truth continually with the goal of conforming to it. Again, not saying, here's a commandment, did I do that? Here's a commandment, did I do that? All that can be done at a distance in the context of alienation from God, right? Anybody can keep rules and regulations. That's not what he's saying. This is the idea of embracing and imbibing and digesting and seeking to be conformed to God's revealed truth specifically his intent and his design and his prescription of sonship. The blessed man is the one who is fully committed to growing in, to learning the sonship that Yahweh's Torah holds forth. Remember even Paul, as he wrote to the Ephesians, he, he, he didn't say you didn't learn about Jesus in this way. He said you didn't learn Christ in this way. Not learn about him, learn him as sharers in him. The issue is, again, a transforming, a conforming to this truth, a Christiformity. So he describes this blessed person, and then he, he gives us some insight, again, in terms of a poetic way of describing these things, incited to the nature and the benefit of this blessedness. He says, this one who is the blessed man will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. And then he gives us the negative antithesis of that in verse 4. But not so with the wicked. Not so. Once again, antithetic parallelism. 
This is what he's like. It's not so with these. It's not so with those. This term blessed is, is usually, um, the, the way that it occurs is, is usually as an interjection like this. How blessed? How blessed is the person in this circumstance? But it really refers to a satisfied and contented happiness. I don't really like to use the word happiness because the connotation in our culture is, oh, it's going well, I'm happy. My friend, you know, my friend did this for me, I'm happy. Happy, 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 right? But it's a very fleeting, fickle, personal, you know, emotive thing. The scripture doesn't use happiness in that sort of a sense. But this idea of happy is the man or blessed is the man, it's a deep-seated, satisfied contentment, satiated contentment, unshakable contentment. A contentment that actually sets a person apart within the sphere of common human experience such that it makes that person remarkable and enviable. What we normally think of happiness is neither remarkable or enviable. It's what everybody experiences when life goes their way, right? This is a deep-seated, unshakable satiated contentment that people look at and they say, that ain't normal. What's going on with that guy? Is he nuts? You see, it's, it's a blessedness or happiness that makes us remarkable, that makes us enviable. That makes us enviable. And again, the writer is emphatic that this sort of happiness or contentment derives from the relationship of the person to Israel's God. Specifically, as God has disclosed himself and made his will known in his Torah. This man who is blessed does what? His delight is in G-O-D as he invents him, as he thinks about him. His delight is in the deity. His delight is in his spirituality. His delight is in his religion. No, his delight is in the God of Israel as he has revealed himself, as he has disclosed his will, his purpose for the world. His delight is in Yahweh's Torah. Yahweh's Torah. The point is, is that this contentment is not just based in, in some kind of religiosity or, you know, a sense of, of peace that we have when we contemplate the concept of a deity out there that's benevolent or whatever it happens to be. It's not that. It's the God who is. So what sting, distinguishes this person and makes him enviable is this contented steadfastness that derives from knowing and conforming to the God of truth the God who is. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you hear people use that all the time to talk about, you know, political truth or economic truth or whatever. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He is the truth. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And John in his third epistle, John makes much of this idea of truth, both in, in his gospel account and then in his three epistles, but he writes in his third epistle and says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper. 
and be in good health, even as your inner man prospers. For I was so filled with joy when brethren came and bore witness to the truth in you. To the truth that is in you, that you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Walking in the truth. The psalmist describes that kind of settled uh, contentedness, that steadfastness, by drawing on the image of a tree. And note the fact that he says a tree planted by the rivers of water. This term, this Hebrew term, is always used of God's work, specifically in relation to Israel. Israel is Yahweh's planting. Whether it's the vine imagery or whatever, Israel is Yahweh's planting. He takes the, it's an establishing of them. Again, has covenantal overtones to it. But this is a tree planted by rivers of water. It's not a tree that happens to just find some water and sprout up of its own. It is planted. And an Israelite would understand this, that this is, again, pointing to God's intent and design and work in relation to his covenant people. He planted them. He established them. And they're planted by what he describes as a constantly flowing stream of water. That sort of a tree, then, the imagery says that it just enjoys this perpetual source of life-giving water that sustains it, that nurtures it, that promotes its well-being and its growth. It doesn't languish in drought. It, It continually thrives in all circumstances and bears its fruit according to God's design for it. Even when the air is dry, even when the rain doesn't fall, it's supple and rich and lush and it bears its fruit in season because it's drawing life-giving water through its roots from this stream. And this would have, again, been very powerful imagery to Israelites who lived in a barren land. Israel's a funny place in that it's very, very humid, but it's just bone dry. (laughs) Most of it is very barren. And the seasonal rains there were the point of longing. You know, drought is a common thing. The wadis dry up. You know, the rivers and the streams, that all dries up a lot of the times of the year. And they wait for the rains, the early and the late rains. And the idea of a perpetual source of life-giving, life-sustaining water is is a very powerful image in that culture. We don't think about it. We turn on the faucet, we turn on the sprinkler, whatever. But in that world, they depended on the seasonal rains. It was a huge thing. It was a huge thing. And he says, that is the blessed man. He's like that. He's sustained. He's nurtured in all circumstances. And he bears his fruit according to God's ordination, God's way, God's timing, he prospers in whatever life brings to him. And it's easy for us, particularly in our culture, to read this as if the psalmist is saying, okay, the man who, who 
who binds himself to studying and, and, and obeying God's law will be blessed in the sense that God's going to prosper him in everything. All of his endeavors will, will come through exactly the way he wants, and there'll be money in the bank, and there'll be this, and there'll be that, and he'll prosper in that way. If he'll just do things God's way, then everything will work out for him. And all the pieces will fall into place. Well, if that's what the psalmist was saying, this psalm would not be much of a promise either to Jesus himself or certainly the early Christians or many Christians throughout church history. Jesus did not find that his devotion to his father's Torah caused him to prosper in the natural material sense in everything that he did. It took him to the cross, right? It took him to the cross. No, the writer is associating this prosperity again with the way in which this sort of a tree thrives. How does this sort of a tree thrive? Prosperity that is essential and abiding, not circumstantial. A prosperity that is essential. In other words, this is the prosperity of a life that is sustained and nurtured by God's ever-flowing resource of truth and the power that are in his spirit. Irrespective of circumstances, irrespective of material status. It's the steadfast prosperity that comes from the life of God himself. It's a prosperity that transcends circumstance. It bears its good fruit. It took my mind back even to, you know, Zechariah in the, in the course of his night visions, if you remember when we went through that series. They're, they're building the temple, and God says, build the temple, build the temple. But then he also says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And the vision involves oil being fed into a lampstand that keeps its lamp burning. And the point is that Yahweh by his spirit will build his house. Yes, you labor. But the actual building of the house comes through the power, the silent, seemingly non-present working of God. That's what the psalmist is saying. Whatever the circumstances of your life, there will be an overall prosperity the well-being that will characterize you. Jesus was certainly not a person who seemed to be prosperous. In fact, people said, this guy, God has set his hand against him, right? He's afflicted. He's stricken by God. The last thing he is is blessed of God. He might even be satanic or demon-possessed or insane, but he certainly is not blessed of God. So the writer explains this blessedness, its benefit, first positively and then negatively. Once again, employing this idea of antithetic parallelism. He contrasts this succulent, uh, uh, fruitful tree with dead, dry, hollowed out chaff. And in the ancient world, they understood this. We don't so much. We go buy our bread at the store and we, we're like, okay, well, God didn't give us this, right? I got it from King Supers. But in the ancient world, they understood the harvesting process and the, you know, the crushing of the grain and the separating of the grain from the chaff. And they would winnow and throw the chaff into the air so that the wind would carry it away because it was the hollow, light part 
the grain would fall back down to the ground and the chaff would be blown away. And that's the imagery here. So that which is by God's own hand planted, secured, deeply rooted, nourished, sustained, contrasted with that which is dead, hollow, empty. The man that is devoted to Yahweh and his Torah is like that deeply rooted tree. But the wicked, in other words, those who lack that devotion, and that's how we have to understand this idea of the wicked. It's not the rapist and the murderer per se, or, you know, the Democrat or whatever, you know, we want to say, okay, this is the wicked person. It's the wicked is the person who's not this blessed one. The wicked, those who lack this devotion, have no true substance or grounding. They are blown away. They are easily blown away. They are easily carried away. And the writer used that antithesis then to lead into the antithetical outcomes that await those two types of people, the righteous, the wicked. He says the one will stand established in Yahweh's judgment. In other words, that standing means that he will, in a sense, prevail and be vindicated before the tribunal. When he stands before Yahweh and his truth, he will be vindicated. When he encounters Yahweh's truth in judgment, he will be vindicated and receive an everlasting place in the congregation, the assembly of all such ones the congregation of the righteous. On the other hand, antithetically, the wicked will be excluded and swept away. Because the God of truth, who has spoken in truth, that's what Torah is all about, knows what is true and will uphold the truth. The God of truth, who has spoken in truth, knows what is true and will uphold the truth. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked will perish. So to conclude, here's how I think we should take Psalm 1 as foundation to the Psalter, foundational to the Psalter and the way in which perhaps the lens through which we read the Psalms. This Psalm, first of all, suggests that there are only two kinds of people. There are only two kinds of people, the righteous and the wicked. But those two types of people are defined by and their fate is determined by their relation to the Torah, God's self-disclosure of himself that came specifically to Israel in the outworking of God's purposes. Righteousness and wickedness are not moral categories in the first instance. They're not ethical categories. They're not behavioral categories. They speak to one's relationship to God, specifically the God of who is the truth, our, our relationship to him according to the truth of who he is. Whether we're right, whether we're moral or immoral, religious, irreligious, good, bad, upright, not upright, whatever, whatever criterion we look at and say, okay, there's righteousness, there's wickedness, it's not that in the first instance. It's how do you stand in relation to the God of truth? The God 
of Israel who disclosed himself and his will in and through Israel for the world. That is the God to whom we will be held accountable. That that truth will judge each person. Yahweh's Torah, his law, will in a sense judge each person, not as some kind of arbitrary or impersonal standard of ethics or morality, but as the embodiment of the verity of human existence as God knows it and intends it. What God's Torah speaks to is what does it look like to be a human being? What does, what does it look like to conform to the truth of our human existence? Not what does it look like to behave properly. Not what does it look like to embrace the right religion. Or the right culture or whatever it happens to be. What does it look like to live an authentic human life? And so the standard of judgment then is authenticity, conformity to the truth, conformity to the truth, the reality of man as God created him to be. In other words, man as image son. And that's the sense in which the psalmist insisted that God knows the way, direct, the path of the righteous. What really is righteousness? What is the path or the way of the righteous? That's the sense in which he says that. God knows what it is for man to be truly man. He knows that way. Why does he know that way? Because he created us to be that. That way is his own eternal determination. It's not an arbitrary thing. The God who is true created a creature to be a certain kind of creature. That is the way of the righteous. Man to be truly man, to fulfill his created nature, to fulfill his created function. And the point that the psalmist is making is God is committed to that outcome. Therefore, there is this winnowing, right? Because God is committed to this outcome. And he doesn't say the wicked will perish, although we can make that argument. He says the way of the wicked will perish. God will not tolerate falseness as a perpetual reality in his creation. He will have his creation, and more narrowly, his human creature, to be what he created him to be. I said even in my prayers we began that it's such a wonderful thing that God would not leave his creation to its own falseness and its own ultimate dissolution and destruction. Everything that deviates from the truth of what it is works towards dissolution and destruction, right? Nothing that is false can endure. You can breed a lion and a tiger together and get an offspring, but it won't be viable because you can't deviate from the truth of what God has created. It can't endure. God is true. His creation will be what he created it to be. And everything that deviates from it will be done away. The way of the wicked will perish.
God is committed to his outcome that he intends. He will have his human creature to be the image son he created him to be. And you say, well, how do we really know that other than the psalm? Well, God has both demonstrated that commitment and also fulfilled it in the incarnate Torah in Jesus the Messiah. How do we know that God is committed to this outcome? The incarnation. The person and the work of Jesus himself. That's why Jesus is the measuring rod of God's judgment. Who do you say the Son of Man is? What have you done with the Son of Man? Not show me the catalog of your transgressions, but what have you done with the one who is true? What have you done with the truth? He is the true human being by which men are measured and in whom, in whom alone they conform to the truth. He's not a way shower. He's not an example to be followed. He is our example in the sense that in him we find the truth of what it is to be a human being. And therefore, if we would be people of the truth, we must be sharers in him. We don't look at him and say, okay, I want to be that kind of person. We say, I want to be that kind of person, but the way I become that kind of person is to share in him. Because in him alone exists this thing called man as God really intended him to be. If Jesus hadn't come into the world, we would never really know what a human being looks like as God intended. We would only see this perverse, corrupted caricature whether moral, immoral, religious, irreligious, whatever. The best of human beings is a perverse caricature of authentic human existence. Only in Jesus do we see the truth of who man is. And that's why we become that in him. We become that in him. He is the embodiment of Yahweh's Torah as the word become flesh. He is the embodiment. If Torah reveals God... Man, what it is to be a father and son together, man's place, man's significance, man's role in God's creation, what it is to live a truly human existence as a son of God, according to this definition of image son, we see that embodied in Jesus himself. He doesn't come and do the law in the sense of, okay, here's the commandments, I'm going to keep them all perfectly. He fulfills the law by embodying in himself what it is that it was speaking about. God's Torah revealed the truth of man specifically in relation to God, and Jesus embodies that in himself. He is the word become flesh. We no longer see the Shekinah in the Holy of Holies. We see the glory of God in the face of Christ. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only begotten Son, has exegeted him, has revealed him. He is the embodiment of Yahweh's Torah. If the man, the blessed man, is devoted to Yahweh's Torah, Jesus is the embodiment of Yahweh's Torah. And so devotion to Torah, what the psalmist is celebrating here, that has become devotion to the Messiah himself through faith and through participation in his life.
So the way of the righteous, then, is a foundational lens through which we read the Psalms. The way of the righteous is the way of human existence that has become yes and amen in Jesus, the last Adam, the new man. Every other way is false and doomed to destruction. And I'm not going to elaborate on this today, but I want you to think about this, particularly in terms of the times in which we live, our culture, in which people are like, okay, you know, why is your way the right way? You Christians, you say it's all about Jesus. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a follower of Muhammad, or I'm a follower of Buddhism, or, you know, I'm a follower of whatever. And we say, no, no, it's got to be Jesus. It's got to be Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And they say, why? And we say, well, because the Bible says so. I don't really know. But these ideas get us at why it's about him and why it's only about him. Because it's not who has the right ideas, who's the best person to follow. It's about how do we become actually the human beings that this God created us to be? How do we become self-actualized, if you want to put it that way? How do we become truly ourselves? Who do we follow or what's the path that we take? Are there many paths that will all lead us there? No, because it's not about believing in this guy versus this guy or following these rules or this religion or that religion. It's about becoming truly who God created us to be. And that exists only in Christ. And we become that only by sharing in him. This isn't just about forgiveness. This is about new creation. This isn't about just dealing with guilt. This is about new creation. Every other way other than the way that is in Jesus himself is false. So here's the way I think in which this psalm is fit to introduce the Psalter. If these psalms are the sons, songs of sonship, they have realized their vision. If they are songs of sonship, they have realized their vision, their message, the truth they put forth. They have realized that in the true image son. And in that way, they now testify of him and they sustain and nourish the father's children as they now live upon his embodied and glorified Torah. Is the blessed man still one who is devoted to Yahweh's Torah and meditates on it day and night? Yes. As Torah has become yes and amen in Jesus the Messiah. I hope in that way we at least have some glimmer of how these psalms have to be viewed as Christ-centered. Yes, as I said, there are psalms that are more overtly messianic. We're going to consider that next time, just even looking at the second psalm. But the psalms themselves, organically, holistically, as songs of sonship, are messianic. Because they have their verity, their truth, their substance, what God was speaking of and promising, they have that in Jesus himself. The image son in whom we become image children and heirs of all that he is heir to. What a glorious thing. Father, these are, I, I think, very simple things in some sense, but they're also perhaps things that we don't tend to think of. And really, to our own shame, we, we often and more naturally, certainly, are more concerned 
with dotting I's and crossing T's, figuring out what it looks like to meet your demands so that life will look the way that we want it to look, so that things will work out the way we want, so that the things that disturb and distract and afflict will be done away with. In a certain sense, we, we don't really care who this God is as long as he arises on our behalf according to our need. I pray, Father, that we would be a people who in all things, in all circumstances, would be truly trees planted by you. That we would be settled that we would be secure, that we would be marked by a contented happiness that cannot depart, that cannot languish, that there would be in our lives, in our countenance, in our constancy, an occasion that, as Peter said, there will be those who will ask us for the reason for the hope that lies in us. That it will be evident that we are not people who find happiness and contentment and settledness in the way that human beings naturally do. We are deep-seated. We are unflappable. We persevere. And we do so with joy and all hope. Father, as we walk out our days, as we walk them out together, I do pray that you would help us to think in this way, to meditate on this Torah day and night, and to be ministers of these things to one another. A cord of many strands is not easily broken, and you intend that we would grow up in all things into Christ as, as a human organism, as a body, as a community, not as individuals living private Christian lives with the confidence that one day we as individuals will be in heaven. No, we understand that we are a part of a cosmic plan. And I pray, Father, that we would be testifiers even in just the the day-to-day steadfastness of our lives. This world is filled with trouble, but we should be of good cheer. Christ has overcome the world, and we are more than conquerors, more than triumphers in him. Help us to own these things. Help us to chew on these things. Help us to be conformed to these things by your spirit, to be transformed by them. Not just as a matter of doctrine, as a matter of getting our, our, our doctrinal ducks in a row, but as a matter of actually being conformed to them, as a matter of our Christiformity. That as Paul said, we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of our Lord. We are being transformed by the Spirit into that same likeness. That should be our end. That should be our goal. That should be our devotion. That's what it means to be committed to your Torah. Help us in these things. That Christ will be exalted in his church. 
and that the church will bear truthful witness to a world that so desperately needs to hear it. We ask these things of you in his name and for his sake. Amen.